Over the last <clears throat> while, I've been reflecting a lot around the, the theme of embodiment. And my sense is that this is really what this path and this practice is actually most deeply concerned with, embodiment. And I think in its deeper sense, embodiment could almost be used as a synonym for nibbana or liberation, where the understandings we endeavor to cultivate, the qualities we endeavor to cultivate, have become so naturalized that they're truly in our bones, and in a sense, there's no choice anymore except to live in the light of those deepest insights, to live in the, the light of kindness, of compassion, of joy and equanimity. But we also recognize that embodiment is a process and it is a practice. And it's very much what we've actually been engaged in over these days. Now, my understanding is that the the Buddha really was primarily concerned with awakening. It's actually what the word Buddha actually means, is one who is awake. And he was concerned with, with a path of awakening that really kind of begins in that mire of confusion and bewilderment. And its outcome or its fruition is really an unshakable liberation of the heart, where those patterns of delusion, of greed, of ill will, have truly been uprooted, that they do not arise again. And that liberation of heart, of course, the freedom from greed and ill will and delusion, doesn't leave a vacuum behind it. But instead, that liberation of the heart is really expressed, or we might say embodied, in an unshakable equanimity, an unshakable kindness, compassion. So when we have to think about what we're doing here, it's very important to acknowledge that we're actually on a path. And a path is something much broader and deeper than only formal practice. As a formal practice is obviously very, very important. But the path is bigger and deeper than just sitting with our eyes closed or walking with walking slowly. You know, there's an anecdote from Ajahn Chah's days, you know, where a young monk is going to Ajahn Chah complaining because he doesn't have enough time to sit. And Ajahn Chah answered, you know, I've seen plenty of chickens who are very good at sitting, but never seen a liberated chicken. Hmm? So when we think of path, it's actually a, a twofold path. But both branches of this path, of course, share a common root. And the common root is, of course, within the domain of integrity and ethics. This is almost like the launch pad of every path. It's, it's the, the ground 
that makes the development of any path actually possible. It's an indispensable starting point. So one dimension of this path, or one branch of this path, of course, is concerned with inner development, really cultivating, as I've mentioned, the capacities that our hearts and minds have for very deep collectedness, for calmness, for mindfulness, for investigation, for intentionality, the capacities of all of our hearts. Those cultivations, of course, are always in the service of insight, of understanding, of coming to see things as they actually are. And I will go into that a little bit later. But sometimes I refer, uh, think of those insights as the places in our lives where we learn what it really is to put down our arguments with the unarguables. So we come, in that inner exploration, we come to understand what dukkha actually is in all of its dimensions. The dimension of dukkha, which is, you know, just simply concerned with the reality of aging, sickness, and death. The dimension of dukkha, which is really concerned with really understanding the change, the very rhythm of change that touches all of our lives. The understanding of that dimension of dukkha, which is concerned with really understanding all the views of self that we hold that divide us from the world and that incur really repetitive and painful experiences of contractedness. We come to understand also our personal story our inwardly generated patterns and beliefs that cause struggle and despair and anger and fear and craving. So the Buddha put it very simply, we come to understand suffering and its cause in order to bring about an end to struggle and suffering. So this first branch of the path is very much concerned with that inner development. We might refer to it as meditative development. But the second dimension of the path is concerned with essentially what we do and how we do what we do. It's concerned with how we engage with the world, the kind of footprint that each of us leaves on the world with our thoughts and our words and our acts that splinter into thousands of consequences that often we don't even see. This dimension of the path is concerned with how we live the life we have, how we live with those we love and care for, how we live with those that we struggle with, and how we care for the countless beings that we don't know or see. And this dimension of the path is really concerned with embodiment, recognizing that in every moment of our day, whether silent or speaking, whether acting or whether we're still, whether we're alone or whether we're together 
with others, we are always practicing something. So we're always embodying something. It's a dimension of the path that's concerned with alignment rather than dissonance, with unification rather than with fragmentation. It's concerned with the ways in which our lives are lived in the light of our deepest values and aspirations. Whether our lives are lived in the light of the integrity we know to be so precious. Whether our lives are lived in the light of our understanding of what perpetuates suffering and struggle. Embodiment is concerned with the question of how much our our lives, our words, our thoughts, our acts, our choices really reflect the kindness and compassion we know to be so essential and how much our lives are lived in the understanding of non-clinging and unbinding. Now these two dimensions of the path are not linear and they're not hierarchical. We don't have to wait for you know, the fruition of wise view and understanding. We don't have to wait for the full maturity of that before we begin to live our lives in the light of knowing how things actually are. Ungraspable and changing and uncertain. We don't have to live, wait for unshakable understanding or unshakable kindness and compassion to arise before we begin to live with a commitment to kindness and compassion. Inner development, cultivation, and embodiment, I think, go hand in hand. Now, I I think probably for most of us, (laughs) the question of embodiment is a pretty challenging one. And I think if we're not disturbed by it, we're probably in denial. (laughs) And it, it, it can be a deeply troubling question because I think we can be painfully aware of dissonance. Anybody not painfully aware of dissonance? We can be painfully aware of the gaps that are real and present in our lives. Of course we deeply value meta. Does anybody disagree? Of course, we, we all think it's a good idea. And yet too often we find like the strands of ill will and judgment arising. Of course we deeply value compassion. We think it's a good idea. And yet sometimes we find it so difficult to look suffering in the eye. So often we find it it's so much easier or so much temp- more tempting to somehow turn away or to move into blame. We probably know something about the toxic power of being held in the grip of craving. Oh, but that second plate of food or that fantasy, or just that one last craving, you know, it looks so tempting. 
we find ourselves setting the intention to be present, to be mindful, to be aware, and yet once more ambushed by thought storms or emotion storms or, or just falling asleep. I doubt if anybody came to this retreat with the intention of having a very extended nap. <laughs> hmm? We sometimes have the intention, you know, to speak with as much kindness and mindfulness as we can, and yet, as one student put it, and you probably know it, I open my mouth and some samsara pops out. Hmm? How many people have experienced leaving a retreat or even on a retreat with the resolve to, to sit? You know, I'm going to have a regular practice, you know. Oh, there's a really good movie on tonight. Mm-hmm. We resolve to be more focused and intentional, and then we find ourselves entranced by distractedness or the notice board. And the concept of, you know, we know we can't grasp an ever-changing life. It doesn't stop us from heroically trying. Hmm? The concept of non-self sounds like a good idea. And yet we find ourselves selfing and self-viewing so many moments. The list is pretty long. I mean, I could spend all night just going through the list and watch you get more and more depressed. (laughs) (laughs) But do any of you recognize any of these places of dissonance? Yes, any volunteers for dissonance? Any of you recognize any of these gaps? It's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? kind of uncomfortable. These gaps are the places or the dissonance of the discrepancy is between, obviously, our aspirations, our intentions and values and what we actually embody in our life. And when we listen to that list, you know, it kind of sounds like bad news. And very often we become very judgmental around dissonance. And I, I think it's even magnified in meditators, you know, because you, before you began to practice, it was kind of like, you know, hard enough to try and get through life as a decent human being, you know. And now you've begun this path, you know, and now your portfolio of expectations has really expanded. <laughs> you know, now you've got to be kind, you've got to be compassionate, you've got to be mindful, you've got to be awake, you you know, it's really, it's really got a lot bigger, hasn't it? But, and so too has the possibility of dissonance. So too has the possibility of the gaps. So it's very easy to be judgmental, to think this is bad news, but I think it's not bad news. And then the Buddha really did clearly recognize that there is, it's not easy to wake up. And we, we could view... Uh, this dissonance as a negative tension and become despairing and want to give up and, you know, plan a lie of future as a sort of retired meditator or a failed meditator. But we could also recognize, you know, as the Buddha did, that this is actually where we practice. We practice in the places of dissonance. We practice in the gaps. That this is what we're concerned with healing. And this is, you know, if you read the early discourses, clearly this is not something new or unique to us. You know, there's several discourses that are actually dedicated 
to actually, what do we do with the intractable? What do we do with these patterns that seem so stubborn, so habitual, so historical, you know, often generational, not even beginning with us, you know? What do we do with it? And and the Buddha recognized the challenge of that, you know, and and in one of the suttas, you know, the the, the Buddha kind of goes through these lists of, of, of kind of wise efforts and antidotes and explorations. And, you know, the, as he goes through the list, the kind of antidotes become more and more extreme, you know. And, and each time he offers another possibility or avenue of approach, he says kind of, and if it still arises? <laughs> and he doesn't say, if it arises again, you schmucks, you know. He says, if it still arises, you know. All is not lost. But this, this is the challenge of waking up, isn't it? It's a challenge of waking up within the landscape of the habitual, the historical, the embedded, the intractable. And I think, you know, that we see that tension in our own path, how the patterns of confusion and, and reactivity can be so familiar. They're, they're like some comfortable old pair of slippers just waiting for us to step into when we get out of bed in the morning you know there they are you know it's kind of like that sort of familiarity of of self so but we see that these patterns of reactivity and confusion are coexisting and they're coexisting with our intention to cultivate wakefulness and to walk no new pathways. So uh, I want to actually look at three areas of embodiment this evening. The first area what is, is really about what it is to be an embodied human being. What does it mean to inhabit this body fully as a place of refuge? The second area I want to look at is the embodiment of the attitudes and the qualities that transform our hearts and lives. And the third area I want to look at is the embodiment of insight. So the first one, what is it to embody this body with mindfulness and understanding? I mean, this sounds like it should be easy, but I think, you know, for many, and particularly for many women, this is really hard. There are so many reasons we don't want to be in the body and we don't want to be embodied. You know, if you are living with chronic pain and, or chronic illness, how, what kind of courage it takes to actually feel that, that the body could be a place of refuge? It doesn't feel like that. You know, if, if you've suffered trauma in your life, you know, or, or sexual trauma or sexual abuse, you know, the body certainly doesn't feel like a place that it's safe to go to. And yet we see that this is our first step in the path because it's almost like the classroom for all the other domains of embodiment. And it's not about forcing, it is about befriending. We see, you know, this is one of the core gaps in our life, isn't it? Between mind, heart, and body. 
how this is so often divided, so often separated. And whenever those moments of division and separation are present, we are not inhabiting this moment. If we don't inhabit the body, we don't inhabit this moment. And, you know, we check this out ourselves. Where do we go when we are not present in the body? We go, it seems, into the past or into the future. And, of course, that's not literally true. But when our minds and hearts separate from the body, very often we're moving into the thoughts about the past, the thoughts about the future, the memories from the past, the anticipations of the future, or the preoccupations in the present. It's really no surprise to me that there's such a large section of the Satipatthana, the biggest of the sections, is devoted to mindfulness of the body, inhabiting the body. Walt Whitman once put it, he said, you know, everything we have ever done, everything we do, everything we ever will do in this life, we do within the body. The body, of course, is obviously always a present moment experience. But when we look carefully at the body, what do we see? We see a mandala of process and conditions. A mandala of process and conditions. And the Buddha gave those instructions, whether sitting, standing, walking, lying down, coming or going, establish mindfulness within the body, even went so far as to say that when there is no mindfulness of the body, there is no mindfulness at all. That's a big statement. It's a big statement. He's basically saying we can't be abstracted. We can't be dissociated. We can't be disconnected in, if we are to cultivate that depth of sati, of mindfulness. And it is challenging. It is challenging. And it's so helpful to look and see where, where we go when not present within the body. And we can also come back. And we do this a hundred times in a day, a thousand times in a day. We come back to know the body as the body. And every time we do that, every time we do return, every time we do come back, we are softening and undoing some of the most powerful habit patterns of our lives of dissociation and fragmentation and disconnection. There's that wonderful little poem I shared with you years ago. You know, this body, you are so kind to sit and wait for me when I am gone. And when I return, it is to you. Hmm? And we do, we do that. And, and there's something powerful that is going on underneath that. Because as we return to the body, we're always returning from somewhere. So as we return to the body and mindfulness of the body, very often we are stepping out of the world of emotional and thought constructions. We're very often stepping out of the world of habit and reactivity to a more responsive mode of being. 
And learning to be present within the body, we actually learn to be present within the mind-body interface. I mean, it's interesting, in Buddhist psychology, you don't speak about mind and body or heart and body. Actually speak about body slash mind. Hmm? They cannot be separated. They're not as two distinct entities, vaguely or intermittently related. But speak about mind-body, heart-body as, as an interfacing process. And as I think we do begin to really inhabit the body more, we see how true that is for us. We get that felt somatic experience and then we become so increasingly sensitive to the way that emotional states and mental states are affecting the body and the way that the body is affecting emotional and mental states. We begin to feel the body of dullness, the body of sadness, the body of fear, the body of obsession. And when we sense that, you know, we really sense that when we're lost, actually, in just the constructs of those, how the physical mindfulness of the body just seems to disappear. It's just gone. But as we learn to actually begin to sense the emotional body within the physical body, it becomes a very powerful and accessible means of beginning to, to explore our emotional landscape that so often just feels inaccessible or overwhelming or frightening. But there's something else that's happening because as we move into the body as it is, it really is a movement into process language. You know, we see sadness is happening, anxiety is happening, Dullness is happening rather than these much more solid edifices of, I am sad. That's like a closed manuscript, isn't it? It's like a finished story. I am anxious, you know. I am like this. You know, it, it's, it's, I had an encounter some weeks ago. I, I was just in my local post office and I was going up to the counter to pay and I noticed this younger woman coming from the other direction and she actually was there before me, you know. So I said, you know, please, you know, go ahead. And she looked at me and she said, oh, that's so amazing. And I said, what what is amazing here? She, She said, nobody ever does that. She says, I'm the kind of person people always push in front of. I said, I'm the kind of person people always push in front of. I mean, that, that is just that example of that kind of closed manuscript, isn't it? That completed story, you know? I am sad. I'm an anxious person, you know? I'm depressed. I'm unworthy. I am this. It's, it's like there's no process in that. That is, that is the world, the solidified edifice of conclusion and identification of course, it becomes our reality. With this cultivation of sati, this present moment recollection, we are learning to step out of those closed books into the world of process, reclaiming the felt and moving sense of the body, fluid, 
changing. And we learn to inhabit the body in an intentional way. And then we learn to inhabit the moment and our life in an intentional way. And the second area of embodiment, I think, really lies within the intentions and the attitudes, the attitudinal commitments that we bring to our life, that we bring to our practice and to ourselves and to the people in our life and the events that we engage with. Mindfulness sati is never attitudinally or emotionally neutral. Sati or mindfulness has the core attitudes and the core intentions of kindness and compassion and unbinding or renunciation. This underpins all wise mindfulness. And without those intentions and without those attitudes, we probably really don't have sati at all. We probably just have attention regulation. Something very, very different. The Buddha has always said that kindness and compassion lie at the heart of the path of awakening, the path of bringing struggle and sorrow to an end, that they lie at the heart of forming wise and trusting relationships with ourselves and with all the people who come into our lives. And they are the intentions, kindness, compassion, unbinding, the naturalized attitudes that need to be at the heart of all the ways that we touch and reach out to the world around us. (coughs) Because these are the intentions that enable us, I think, to be a conscious participant in the healing of our planet and the healing of our world that's so fractured and so wounded by fear and by hatred and by ill will and by greed, and we are, we are a part of that world. And we can't choose not to be. We can only choose how we're going to engage with that world. And this is where these intentions, these attitudinal commitments are so deeply, deeply important. Kindness and compassion is actually what enables us to meet the very difficult events and experiences in our lives without fear and without resistance and judgment. And they're not qualities separate from insight. I would say they are the embodiment of insight. And they are qualities, I think, kindness and compassion, that, that we kind of almost implicitly develop in practice. But they're also explicitly and intentionally cultivated as pathways to awakening in themselves. I think it has been a a terrible shame that kindness and compassion, I think, in some Buddhist traditions have almost been kind of uh, degraded to being the poor cousins of insight. You know, kind of like second-class pathways, you know, feel-good factors, which is never there in the original teachings where the Buddha really speaks of them as the indispensable foundations of of an awakened life. Kindness and compassion means to care, to care for adversity, to care for affliction, 
that we inevitably meet in our lives. But it also teaches us, kindness and compassion teaches us to widen the circle of our concern. And that is central to this path, that we just never do practice only for ourselves. But to truly widen the circle of our concern, as the Buddha put it in the Metta Sutta, with friendliness for the whole world, should one cultivate a boundless heart, above, below, and all around, without distinction, without hate, and without ill will, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, whenever one is awake, may one stay with this recollection. This is called the best way of living in this world, here and now. And in this teaching of boundless, inclusive matter or friendliness, the embodiment of that is, is something larger than just consciously inhabiting this or my body. Widening the circle of our concern is to extend our attention, our kindness and compassion into the felt and lived experience of the universal story of all bodies widening our awareness to include those who don't have access to the ways of being awake, widening the circle of our awareness to those who are powerless, to those who are without ground, to those who who are tormented and oppressed, knowing that they, like us, long for freedom from pain and suffering, from fear and loneliness and despair, knowing that they, like us, long for acceptance and peace, love, dignity, knowing that they, like us, have deeply rooted capacities for hatred and ill will, for being disconnected from the family of beings. And they, like us, hold the capacity for the transformation of their hearts and minds. A friend of mine, he once said, we, we cannot choose this path to awaken only for ourselves, that we can only participate in the awakening of the world. I mentioned yesterday that the journey from aversion and ill will, from fear and alienation to kindness and compassion responsiveness and connectedness, I think, is the most powerful shift that any of us can ever make. And again, it's a shift that concerns itself with the kind of footprint that we leave upon the world with every thought and word and action. And ill will, we know, leaves such a powerful footprint because it always creates the other. And the creation of the other, you know, there is no violence, there is no oppression, there is no uh, torment, there is no cruelty that can ever be take place without the creation of the other. And the other, as I mentioned, is sometimes internal. What we cannot accept, what we cannot embrace, what we feel is unacceptable within ourselves. And sometimes the other, of course, are the people and the events we reject and fear and disdain 
But it's always suffering is always the outcome, isn't it? It's always the outcome. It's not easy to learn to embody kindness and compassion, and you know, we don't even have to feel like it. I think that's the extraordinary thing about the Buddha's teaching. He said, you don't have to feel kind to be kind. You know, it's like you don't have to feel compassionate to live in a compassionate way. This is an attitudinal commitment. You know, it's got nothing to do with what we feel like, really. You know, I remember one of my Tibetan teachers in the early days, you know, people going to him and saying, you know, these endless teachings on compassion and, and, and somebody saying to my teacher, you know, but I don't really feel that way. And he sort of scratched his head and he said, well, that's good. what's that got to do with anything? <laughs> because it's an attitudinal commitment. It's not, attitudinal commitments are not subject to the passing winds of our mental states and preferences and likes and dislikes. That's what an attitudinal commitment is. It's actually what we commit to, not to the passing emotions or mental states that may not be so reliable. It's not easy to learn to embody kindness and compassion, but in truth, it's actually much harder not to. It's much harder on ourselves to live with ill will or fear or harshness. And this is a path of the moment. It's a path of the moment. By the way, doing something that we don't feel like is a very unpopular teaching in the West, I've discovered. (laughs) It's a really unpopular teaching, you know, when we think our our kind of what we feel like is, is a kind of authentic guide for everything. Well, we could think of a number of examples where that's not particularly helpful. (laughs) It's interesting that, you know, this question of of like stepping back from ill will and aversion and, and, and judgment. You know, I always think that restraint is the forerunner of unbinding. And again, this is truly unpopular teaching in the West, restraint. In fact, a couple of months ago, I was teaching in Italy and I... Please do not, if there are any Italians here, this is not a generalization about the Italian consciousness. (laughs) But I was teaching in Italy and I started talking about restraint and I have a translator there, you know, and and he just stopped and he looked at me and then he looked at the audience and he couldn't find the word in Italian for restraint. (laughs) And there were words, but they were all negative. They all, they all kind of suggested a kind of suppression or containment or compartmentalization. Whereas, you know, you think about restraint. What is it like to have that pregnant pause before that, that word of harshness flies out of our mouth? You know, what is it like to be able to cultivate that sort of pregnant pause before we jump into that impulse or that reaction? What is it like to be able to just stop for a moment and breathe out? That's restraint. And it's always in the service of something, isn't it? It's in the service of just just cultivating that moment where we can actually see what is going on rather than being governed by the world of impulse. And it is a forerunner. And as we restrain, you know, sometimes restrain, because this is a path of development, you know, 
as we learn to restrain, we actually do see that ill will and fear are also processes. They are not life sentences. They are not terminal conditions. They are also processes. And the great blessing, I think, of sati and mindfulness is that it begins to introduce a little bit more choice into our life. You know, I could walk that pathway or I could walk that pathway. And those choices are guided by knowing what causes suffering and what brings it to an end. The third area of embodiment is the embodiment of insight or understanding, aligning our hearts and minds and lives with the way things actually are. It's not easy. We see how, how, how easily we actually do live in the world of should. The shoulds that we impose upon ourselves, the shoulds that we impose upon other people, the shoulds that we impose upon the world. And I, if you really look at it closely, I think that every moment of should holds some thread of aversion, some thread of rejection, some thread of selfing and othering, and signals a kind of departure from what is into dissociation, into disembodiment. Now, shoulds are sometimes, again, a historical habit, yet we have to see that all of our habits persist only as long as they are fed. Hmm? So what are the insights we're asked to embody? In my experience, you know, the insights that are highlighted in this teaching are very, very rarely news to anybody. We kind of know them, don't we? We know about impermanence. We know about the intrinsic, uncertain change that runs through all people and events and us, through our thoughts, our views, our identities, our emotions. We know that our sense of, on some level, that our sense of self is really only an illusory appearance in some ways, only only an illusory solidity. We know that there is unsatisfactoriness in this life, that we can't rely on or we can't control the world of conditions. We can't do this with our own thoughts, our bodies. We know we can't find true refuge in the unreliable. There's something from one of the texts, and I I am paraphrasing this somewhat, when the Buddha says, you know, why would I imagine that I a being who is subject to aging, sickness, death, and change, could ever find refuge in that which is also subject to aging, sickness, death, and change. I think that's quite a statement. Many times we know about what causes pain and suffering. We know the painfulness of craving, of feeling what we don't, feeling we don't have what we need. We know the painfulness of aversion, of feeling that we have what we don't want. We know the the painfulness of confusion. None of these insights are actually really new to us. And to different extents, we all know that we're not an independent, unchanging, autonomous, solid sense of self. We see the changing faces of self every single hour. 
every single day, from happy to unhappy, from hopeful to despairing, from mindful to dissociative. Yet there can often be a considerable gap between our knowing and the embodiment of that knowing in our thoughts, words, acts, and choices. Some psychologists call it conscious incompetence. We know what's going on, but we're doing it anyway. Hmm? Some psychologists call it discrepancy thinking. I love that. (laughs) Discrepancy thinking. (laughs) A gap between how things are and how we insist upon they should be. It's kind of of discrepancy discrepancy here. We know, it's kind of like that real frustration when we know what's happening, yet we feel compelled to engage in the same familiar patterns over and over. So this is where we practice, to heal the gaps, to naturalize our knowing. And there's a lot of factors involved in the healing of dissonance. And we've been engaging in them all here. Mindfulness, investigation, kindness, compassion, dedication, intention, cultivating the inner stillness and the inner calm that allows our knowing to sink into our bones. Allowing that knowing really to become naturalized and to know that insight actually has implications. You know, if we really see the changing, unstable, fluid nature of this world, Everything in it, in, inwardly and outwardly, has a little bit of a message written on that. It says, don't grasp. Don't cling. If we truly see the, the kind of the, 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 the suffering that comes from being lost and craving and aversion, it has a little message on it. Learn to be a, dis- a bit disenchanted with those worlds constructed out of craving and aversion. If we really see the the kind of changing nature of self and how self is a process as much as the body is a process, it's got a little message written on it. Don't give this so much authority. Hold this a little bit more lightly. And then we learn moment to moment to walk new pathways. Pathways that are aligned with actually what is true, with what is actual, releasing the contractedness of arguing with the unarguable. We learn to be an embodied human being. You know, and I really do feel this is our potential, this is our capacity, and this is our dedication. If we have just a moment quietly together.
again and thank you for your attention. So we have some <clears throat> time for some walking now and then we'll be coming back for the last group sitting.